everyone, and welcome to the Inclusion Podcast. Episode 12 is a little different because, as you recall, the last two episodes I spent talking to Pat Radel about these 10 myths of special education, and now we're going to switch things up a little bit. Sure, sure. So hopefully we did some good myth-busting in the last two episodes, but I thought we'd turn the tables a little bit here, Mm -hmm. and as a parent and practitioner, I have some Ask Dr. Julie questions that I think that... (laughs) other parents and other practitioners and some educators might be interested in hearing the answer to. Okay, I'm ready. And we haven't reviewed these questions, so I'm ready for them. All right, great. Okay. So uh, why this work? You've you've devoted your life and your career to inclusive special education. I think anyone who's listened to your podcast or seen you present knows you have a real passion uh, for it. Where does that passion come from? Why this work? Yeah, so originally I was going to be a general education teacher and I was in school learning about that and I met a person with a disability and my mind was kind of blown by this student. It was particularly because she was somebody who everyone thought had a really low IQ and everyone thought she really couldn't be very successful and I realized the student with the right communication supports was brilliant and we had missed the boat. For her and that alone was what really catapulted me into thinking about changing my career to a special education teacher and then it's just kind of I would say if I thought about it stepping stones every single human being that I've met in the field has made me more committed to the work of inclusive education and I honestly spend sleepless nights thinking about kids that aren't included knowing the real differences in people's experiences so I won't get specific here, but I think we're about the same age. Yeah. And uh, IDEA, the federal law that uh, governs special education, that contains a very robust um, presumption in favor of inclusion, mm-hmm. is just about as old as we are. <laughs> so why aren't we further ahead? Why are there so many students still being uh, educated outside of inclusive settings? Why, why aren't we further ahead? Why aren't we further ahead, I think, comes from... It's not a very popular sentiment, but it comes from fear and loathing of difference, is my opinion. And I think we, as long as we continue to train educators to view people with disabilities as other than or separate from or in this medical view of something wrong with them, they need to be fixed or remediated, as long as we see human beings as the other, we will continue down this path. And so I actually think It's all about a paradigm shift, meaning colleges, universities that are preparing teachers and just our society at large needs to really rethink this concept of disability as diversity. So all human beings being diverse people that are really allowed to have access to anything anyone else has. I see that as it's a really like a deep fundamental thing. Uh, I talk about Brown versus Board of Education often in the work that I do, and we know that we've decided in 54 that schools need to become more inclusive of race, and we need to rethink this concept of white and black schooling, and I don't think we're there yet when it comes to disability. I think we're still kind of stuck in a paradigm that says less than as opposed to equal to. Let me ask you, this is going to start a little philosophical. I often make the joke, my bachelor's degree was in philosophy. I didn't think I would use (laughs) that in my law practice, but now I'm in special education law and philosophy comes up more often than you'd think. Um, In the Eastern tradition, there's the concept of yin and yang, Mm -hmm. with one being the concept of order 
and the other being the concept of chaos. Mm -hmm. And chaos with a more positive frame, creativity, flexibility, imagination, kind of a free-spiritedness. Mm -hmm. um, and order, rules, norms, and standards. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, want, I wonder about is if one of the reasons why we have not made more progress is that many people who become superintendents, who become principals, and become teachers do so because they are rule followers and upholders and people who believe it's important to have standards and norms. Hmm. So when we as inclusion advocates push against that and argue for more flexibility, more creativity, more chaos, mm -hmm. is part of the problem that we're not speaking their language. That when we talk about creativity and chaos, they worry about disorder and disorganization, and we're not speaking their language when we advocate for inclusion. Hmm. I've never really looked at it that way, Pat, but I want to say this. I think some of the most diverse educators in a system are some of the first on board with inclusive education, often because, like me, they'll say to themselves, I didn't really fit into a system very well, right? And they can see that for a lot of students. So I like the idea of two languages being spoken, this concept of order versus sort of more creative. And I think it begs the question, who's making the decisions, making sure that we've got people that are making educational decisions about kids to be as diverse as the kids are themselves. I'll give an example. Whenever I'm teaching teachers, I'll ask them a question like, um, raise your hand if you've ever done something you're not proud of, right? And the whole room raises their hand and kind of chuckles embarrassingly or just sort of like giggles a little bit. And it's weird, but we see ourselves as this unique bunch of human beings in education, and yet we want the standardized student. We expect the standardized student. And we want to talk about deviations from the standard. I think it comes from this factory model of schooling where we want to produce the same kind of student, you know, that, that we're, we actually batch them by grade, like if you think of it that way, right? And we're putting widgets out. Schools, all I can say about the why, I'm, the why I'm not sure, I love this concept of two languages, but I know that something has to change for all of us to get schools up to this moment in time. I think we're lagging about 200 years in terms of who our students are and how we can get the best and the most out of them. And uh, talk a little bit about your experience. How do families, when they're having difficult times with schools, how do we maintain that relationship? Because I, I end up, of course, mm. I have selection, I end up with selection bias. People don't generally call me as a special education attorney to say things are going great with right, school. Right, 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 right. I generally get the call when things are pretty toxic. Um, and I have to be honest, you know, I have sometimes the, the very difficult conversation with families where I say, look, if you can't be in the same room as a special ed director without wanting to harm them <laughs> right. um, or without screaming at them, that's not a problem that I as a lawyer can really solve. So what are some strategies that you've seen work for families to navigate? We want to be advocates and we don't want to just let things go, but how do we do that in a way that uh, preserves that relationship and that ability to have a reciprocal problem-solving relationship going forward. Yeah, so I'm reading Brene Brown's book on leadership right now, which I recommend to you and everyone who's listening. So much of this work is the human interaction piece. 
it's a scary situation to be a parent of a child with a disability. And you, as well as I, know the power and balance that families feel when they walk into a CSE, whether they're members or not. This The feeling often isn't of equality. And so I noticed that a lot of families are in the place of fear when they're doing the work with school systems. And so I think it's really about that human work of figuring out how to be as professional as possible even when you're in a place of fear. And I like this, it's a tiny suggestion, but it really helps in a lot of the meetings that I'm in, is I have families name their fear. And so they'll say, I'm gonna set this out here as a fear that I'm having right now, can we talk about it? Because it's a lot more accurate than just sort of armoring ourselves up and coming to the table ready to battle. We say, this is what I'm worried about, this is what I'm scared about, help me understand it. And I've worked with families from, uh, who have decent relationships with teams all the way to disastrous relationships with teams. And often, and actually sometimes I turn to you, Pat, to ask the question, you know, is this our ditch to die in? Like, are we really going to fight every teeny piece or are we going to figure out what makes the most sense? Where should we really put our energy and come to the table with this problem-solving mindset? So that's a lot of different ideas, but I think essentially it's just the work that we all have to do to be human beings, remembering that every person in that room is also a person, and we have to use our best skills and strategies to communicate with people. So one of the things I think is is you have a unique position that, I don't like to use the word sides, but mm-hmm. you've kind of been on the inside of the education system mm-hmm. um, and also on the outside working with families. Yep. So what's one thing that parents would be surprised to learn about the inner workings of schools when it comes to students with disabilities? Most parents would be surprised to know how deeply educators care. I think the CSE meeting itself isn't a place that's very conducive to conversations of just how much these educators care for your child to be successful because Um, It's a lot of paperwork and it's a lot of boxes to check and things like that. But what I know to be true is I spend most of my time with teachers and they are up nights trying to figure out how to make it work. And the more we can come to the table with sort of a human, compassionate response to one another, uh, it's funny because I was just at an IEP meeting that was really interesting. Finally, we got to the place where a teacher said, I'm just trying to make this work. And what was interesting is what that allowed for the parent to say is, hey, me too, right? Hey, at home, I'm, I'm kind of barely hanging on too, and I'm trying to figure it out also. And it was like when we, when we got to that piece where we could just talk about where we really were with this child, all of a sudden, like um, getting to that honest point, we were able to be really creative all of a sudden because we realized we were both coming from the same place. Educators enter the field wanting to do what's right for kids and parents want what's right for their kids because they love them dearly. So if we can start with that place and kind of return to that place when things aren't going well, we can usually get to a little bit better outcome. That's great. One thing I'll just note, people, it surprises people sometimes, but you know, whenever I'm in the room in a special ed meeting, Mm -hmm. the intensity is, is ramped up right away, right? All of a sudden there's a person in a suit, oftentimes the school (laughs) district's attorney's there. And I've found recently um, I can kind of surprise people by saying, hey, look, can we start the meeting by talking about areas where we agree? 
Yeah. Can't we all at least agree? Um, and then we can set sort of a groundwork of foundation of agreement. And then, okay, let's talk about some areas maybe where we have a difference of opinion and see whether we can problem solve that in light of our agreement. Beautiful. That's such a good strategy. And I, I'm just going to add to it. I like to hand out sticky notes to everybody at the table and have them come up with street, three strengths of this child and put them up and we group them together. So it's like sometimes we can't even don't even know where we agree, but we can all agree that we love this kid in some fashion and we can all agree that this child has strengths in some places. The dad at the last meeting that I was at that we did this saw all these strengths listed in writing on the on the wall and started to cry. And he said, I've just never really realized that you all see this in my daughter, right? And again, it's just a way to start with that agreement as opposed to where do we disagree? Absolutely, that's great. So let me flip it then. So something that um, educators would be surprised to learn about parents. Educators would be surprised to learn how scared parents are to walk in that room. Educators are doing this. Now, I don't mean to say that educators feel like callous about it or anything. Instead, they're though going through maybe, you know, many CSE meetings in a day and uh, many in a year and they've been doing it for years. And so as parents walk in the door, we forget, educators sometimes forget that they're very scared. They're scared that the team is gonna start out with what's wrong with their kid and they're scared that they're going to get to a place where maybe a district is going to say, we don't want your child here anymore. I mean, I'd say those are the biggest pieces to hear the negative stuff about their kid, but also to talk about placement that changes, you know, changes in placement. And so um, anything that educators can do to help make families feel more comfortable will really help with the conversation. I love when districts give draft IEPs. That's such a great strategy because now I have sat home, as a parent, I've sat home on my couch. I've been able to read the whole thing. I've not been expected to process the information in a larger meeting. And so I actually love it when draft IEPs are created and then parents are allowed to construct the IEP with that draft as a starting point. Um, That really helps, I think, kind of level the playing field. All right, so I'm going to borrow my last question from the Tim Ferriss podcast. Okay, cool. I like it. If you could put a billboard outside of every school in America, Mm. what would you write on that billboard? Disability is diversity. Okay. Thanks, Pat. This was very fun. Thanks, everyone, and we hope to see you on the next podcast. Don't forget to listen and rate. Thank you.